Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, good morning. Glad you're here. If you want a title for this morning's message, it's The Man with a Plan Who Ran. Something like that. You can tweak it however you like. So we'll be in the book of Jonah, if you didn't figure it out from the title, the book of Jonah. Um, he was he had a particular plan, and I think uh, when God uh, imposed his plan upon Jonah, Jonah wanted to go the other way. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. God speaks to you and you think, oh, I don't know about this. Maybe the other way is a little bit better. But what the story of Jonah shows us is that everyone's accountable to God whether they know it or not. And uh, he can influence the circumstances of our lives, and he'll judge the details of our lives as well. So a lot of the uh, triumphs of knowledge over nature has given us the impression that we're in control of our own destiny. It sometimes feels that way, doesn't it? Like we, we've got a lot of choices, a lot of different options in life. And it can give us the, the feeling that we're in control of everything that happens to us. We're living a little bit longer since we have a better understanding of health, and we can triumph over distance with communications and uh, travel technology. And, of course, uh, we have invented time-saving devices that help us do things with a lot more efficiency. Does anybody find that a little bit ironic, that we can do things more efficiently, but we're busier? Right? Like, it used to be all day we're trying to catch our food or whatever, and uh, now we just go conveniently to the grocery store, but whatever spare time we were supposed to have from not having to hunt and gather, uh, we fill it up with other things, right? That's kind of ironic. But uh, we, we have, uh, we've seen advancements in our world in terms of individual freedoms. There's a lot of options. Uh, in time past, whatever your father did, if you were a boy, that's what you would do. And whatever your mother did as a girl, that's what you would do. And so the options were very limited. Uh, now we have lots of options. And the poets have told us that we're pioneering, uh, that we're pioneers forging ahead to a better tomorrow. And probably the apostasy of our day is connected to the idea that we don't really need God because we're the masters of our own destiny. And certainly not a God like the God of the Bible. But we're finding that things are not turning out so well for us in our sophistication, that our streets are not safer, that our lives, even though we live longer, are not always better. Uh, we're finding that there's turmoil in our hearts and lives and within our families, and it seems that the family structure itself disintegrates. And so things, just because we have more choices, that doesn't always mean that life is better. And are our lives any more certain? I just heard uh, or read, I don't know if you read about this recently there was a shooting in a in a buffalo did you see that in the supermarket i mean of all places you think you're going to be safe when you're in the store right and uh, there's there's tragedy all around us and that's just so common these days that many times we feel like it's hardly worth mentioning uh, and that's sad it shows the danger of our times and god told israel that if they ever forsook him they would find that there would be danger in their streets uh, and I think that's uh, the place that we are 
in today's world. In the book of Jonah here, we're going to look at just a part of chapter 1. In fact, I think we'll, we'll read all of chapter 1. And I'd like you to notice, because we won't be able to get past this uh, chapter 1 portion except in reference to the rest of the story, which probably all of us know. I hope you know the story of Jonah. If you don't, uh, take some time today and read through this these four chapters. Uh, it's entertaining. I don't know if you've thought about this, but in my mind, when I think of Jonah, the Jonah character is played either by Woody Allen or Larry David. One of those two are my Jonah character when I think about what Jonah's like. But think about this uh, in particular, uh, that there are three sets of people in this story. First, Jonah, a prophet of God, who claims to hear God, but nevertheless disobeys God. Excuse me, he, he claims to fear God. Nevertheless, he disobeys God. You have a group of sailors who don't know God, but come to meet God in a storm because of Jonah and his rebellion. That's interesting. And then you have the Ninevites who don't know God, but who come to meet God in the reluctant preaching of Jonah. So you have three different uh, categories of people. And it would be a good thing for us to understand a little bit of the background to appreciate this story more. If you know these things, when you read the story of Jonah, you'll appreciate a little more about why Jonah may have done what he's done. I, I would like to show you, but I don't have it with me, a map of where Nineveh is in relation to Israel. But if in your mind you can go a little bit to the northeast, you'll find the city of Nineveh. And at this time, it's probably uh, somewhere around uh, 670, somewhere right in there, 670 to 640 B.C. We find, uh, excuse me, 7, sorry, 760 Okay, erase all that, go back in the tape, erase that first part, 760 B.C. And what that means is that there's about 40 years between now, the time of the preaching of Jonah, and when the Assyrians are going to come down and besiege Samaria and take the Israelites into captivity. But already there are skirmishes that are happening along their borders, and uh, there's nervousness on the part of of the Israelites about what Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, is going to do. And so that's the first thing that we ought to know from the background here is that Nineveh is the capital of a, uh, a growing empire known as Assyria. The second thing we should know is the Assyrians are a rising power in the north, and depending on how you date Jonah, they're already terrorizing Israel. They're already doing it. And so there's a natural animosity between Israel and Assyria, between Samaria, the capital of Assyria, or uh, Israel, and Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Then the third thing that I think is important to notice is that the Assyrians are not followers of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They're not. Okay, are you with me on that? So then the question becomes, why is Jonah going to preach to them? If they're disobeying their God, their prophets ought to deal with that. Well, here's the theology of the whole Bible is that God is the God of the whole earth and everyone is accountable to him. Okay, that's what the Bible is teaching us here. The Assyrians are not followers of Yahweh, Israel's God. An idolatrous brood, they're ruthless to their enemies. Here's the fourth thing to keep in mind as we're thinking about Jonah's context here is a mission to another people is rarely described in the Old Testament. Think about that. It's rarely described in the Old Testament. Perhaps the time that Moses goes to Pharaoh, I don't know if you've ever thought through this, 
But when Moses goes and God tells him to go and visit Pharaoh, do you remember what God says the reason for the plagues are? Is that Israel and Pharaoh and Egypt will know that I am the Lord. That I am the Lord. That they will know that I'm the Lord. Tell me that's not evangelistic. Okay? That they will know that I'm the Lord. So we don't usually see that. We have other prophets like Obadiah and some of the other later prophets that prophesy against the nations. But in terms of going to them, Jonah's an outlier here. He's called by God to go to them. And then the fifth thing I'd like you to note as we think about the background to this is that what Jonah doesn't know, or maybe he does know being a prophet, and God may have revealed it to him, but within 40 years, Nineveh will besiege Israel's capital. And here's what that says to me is God, in his foreknowledge, knowing that this people will rise up and still become the enemy of God, extends even still his grace to them. And that's powerful that God will give a chance that he'll extend grace and he'll, he'll extend his mercy to those that he knows in time will not accept him, that will turn away from him. And yet he gives them the option to turn and to follow him. So these things are in the background of the book of Jonah. And I wonder if, as Jonah considers all of this, if he begins to think, what will people at home think of me if I go and preach to Nineveh? What will they think of me? Okay, What will they think of me? Let's read chapter 1 here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard the ship, and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Let's pause here for a moment and talk about a couple things. If you're going to Nineveh, you're going northeast. If you're going to Joppa, you're going southwest. Okay, what does that tell us? He's going the opposite direction. And so he's running from the Lord. God's told him to go preach against it. And the wickedness of this godless city, they don't serve God, but their wickedness has risen to the point, and we have historical records of what the Assyrians were capable of. I mean, some grotesque stuff of their enemies. They used to skin their enemies and use that skin as wallpaper for some of their rooms. So that tells you these are not friendly folk. They're surly and nasty. So this has risen up before the Lord, and God sends Jonah to go to Nineveh, but Jonah ran away, and he heads for Tarshish. We don't know where Tarshish is. There's speculation. Maybe it's Spain. Maybe it's somewhere near the Rock of Gibraltar where the the Mediterranean opens up into the Atlantic. Um, we don't know for sure, but we know that in Jonah's mind, he's getting as far away from the call of God as he can. And so he decides he's going to flee from the Lord. And here's that last thing is that his intention to get away from God is outrunning his theology. Because good theology from any prophet of the Old Testament will know that the God of Israel is the God of the whole earth. In other words, let, let's just translate that. You can't run away from God because wherever you go, he's there. Are you with me? You might run away from the call and say, I'm getting as far away from that as possible. But wherever you find yourself, God's going to be there. When Elijah ran and he hid, God met him there and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Oh, 
I thought I got away from the call for a little bit. You know, I went to Florida just to relax and have some vacation time. But there you are, Lord, and my call is still with me. And so this is what Jonah is trying to do, get as far away from the Lord as he can. But notice verse 4 says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up, and all the sailors were afraid. And each cried out to his own God. And they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Okay? Sailors are a unique brood, aren't they? Like, what is it that's, uh, is it about sailors that you say things like they could cuss like a sailor? Anybody heard that before? Apparently I had an aunt that could cuss like a sailor. And that was not a pleasant thing. But when the seas get rough, everybody begins to call upon their God. My Uncle Paul was in um, the Navy in World War II, and they were just outside. I think they may have been in the Battle of Leyte. And uh, they were just outside of Leyte, and a typhoon set in, and they were 40-foot seas. And he said, everybody, even the most rank heathen, were on their knees praying to God. And so that's uh, something like the scene here. Let's get rid of all the cargo. Let's make the ship as buoyant as we can. We've got to stay afloat because the gods are angry. That's their thinking. And so they're each crying out. They're throwing cargo into the sea. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. Why don't you find that interesting now? You've got a... a Someone who's trusting in God, and I, ha- I have a sense here that he knows exactly what this is about. Don't you? That, like, I'm not going to Nineveh, and my life may be threatened by this, but I'm not going. And, God, I know what you're doing here, but I'm going to just step away and get some rest on this. Because if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, but I do not want... I can't figure that out, can you? Like, he would rather die than go to Nineveh. We know why, because he says so later. The reason he doesn't want to go is for some reason he does not like Assyrians. Maybe he has a problem with the fact that they're not Israelites. Probably has a problem with the fact that they're bothering Israel, God's people. But he would rather die than go there as a missionary. He's ready to die for it. And so he goes below sleeping. So if you have the contrast now between the sailors, they're running around in a frantic mood, throwing things overboard, praying uh, as they're working. Jonah is not praying. Jonah is sleeping. Jonah is not frantic. He's below deck in the ship. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. I'd like you to see a conflict. This is a, this is a power encounter. This is a conflict in theology and worldviews that's happening right here. And this happens all the time. As we go into the world, you're going to find people that they're calling upon whatever their God is, whatever their trust is. And in the time of trial, they're going to say, and you need to call upon your God. As if one of us is going to randomly hit the right button and find out which God will really work. And Jonah knows that's ridiculous because there aren't, those other gods are not gods at all. And uh, but the captain says you should be, you should be praying and not sleeping. Then the sailors said to each other, "Come, let's cast lots and find out who's responsible for this calamity." And Jonah's like, "Oh, brother, I know exactly what's going to happen here. I think he knows ahead of time what's going to happen here." 
They cast lots, and the lots fell to Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Pause here for a moment, because I'm a pastor. And I know if I start talking to people on an airplane, and they ask me what kind of work I do, and I tell them I'm a pastor, the conversation is going to go one of two ways. They're going to shut down completely, or they're going to get real spiritual. All of a sudden. <laughs> and, that, and so I would rather that, com- that comment never come up. Let's just talk. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about other things too. That's fine. But don't ask me what I do because when I do, you're going to get weird about it. So they ask him, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a Hebrew and I'm a, I, worship, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And when he says, I worship here, I fear. I fear. That's the word. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. In in fact, all of this is his. See, this is a conflict, too, because a lot of people, even the Greeks, divided gods based upon where you were in the world. If you were in the sea, it was Poseidon or uh, Neptune, if you're Roman. If you're on the land, of course, Zeus rules that, right? The underworld is Pluto or Hades. And so depending on where you were, depending on which God you called upon, but what Jonah says, bold right in their face. No, the God that I serve is Lord over all of this. If you're on the land, he's God. If you're in the sea, he's God. He's God of all of this. Okay, so he's telling them that. And uh, this terrified them. I'd like you to note here that verse 10, this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done, is they feared. They feared with fear. They were, they were afraid because of what uh, was said to them. They were afraid. And so it's a similar word. The terrified, the, the reverent worship is fear, to fear the Lord. And to be afraid here is to fear. Okay, so this terrified them. What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So some of this is on the sailors because if you know that you're running from, okay, you're not going with us, buddy. Right? That's what should have happened, but they didn't, uh, they didn't uh, turn him away. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah, casually, it seems to me, says, well, just pick me up, throw me in the sea, he replied, and it, uh, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault this great storm has come upon you. Okay. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before, and they cried out to the Lord, They cried out to the Lord. Who's crying to the Lord here in verse 14? The sailors, they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. I mean, this is a funny story for everybody but Jonah. Right? The sea grew calm. And then it says in verse 16, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. Notice again, feared the Lord. Okay. Jonah says, I fear the Lord. 
But he's not really acting like it, is he? He's out there running from God, disobeying God, and he's saying, he's almost like challenging God, go ahead and take my life. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to Nineveh. The men feared the storm. Okay? And now that Jonah has been thrown overboard, his theology has been proved true, and even more important than that, they've seen God's hand in this. They feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. And then they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So I want you to notice here there's some things, and you'll, you'll see this later on in the story. You know, Jonah, he decided not to go. In fact, he decided it would be better for him and for the nation that he just run away. But we see that he's not really in control of all the details. He thinks he is. He thinks he can get away from God. In fact, even these sailors are saying they're, little incantations, and most of the time people saw their relationship with God as kind of this bartering for a better life. Not really a love relationship, but I'll do this favor for you if you'll do this favor for me. And that's not really biblical religion. Biblical religion, I know some people hate that word, but there's a legitimate use of that. Biblical faith in God really has to do with a covenant relationship between us and him, not one that says, I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me, but one that says, because you've already acted first, my best response is to live for you and serve you. It's one of, of fear, and it's one of obedience to him. But notice in verse 17 that as Jonah plops into the drink, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So I've said this before, and it's probably not worth talking about much, but some, some want to distinguish between fish and whale here. I don't know that there's a unique word for whale in the Bible. It would have looked to ancients as though it were a fish, right? Whales and fish look a little bit alike. Everybody agree to that? Okay. And then uh, some Bible scholars suggest that it may not even be that specific. Dag is the word for fish in the Bible, but it can also be obscure, and it could mean some kind of sea creature. So whatever it is, it swallowed Jonah, and it was sent by God. Okay, That's the significant part of this, is that it was sent by God, and Jonah was in this, the belly of this for three days and three nights. And so uh, he ran. He was in control of what his decision would be. He was not in control of what would happen after that. And what he really was lacking, even though he said he fears the Lord, He wasn't acting as though he feared the Lord. He wasn't acting as though God was really in control of all this. He was living a little bit differently, and I wonder if we ever live like that. We see this all through the book of Jonah, that uh, we, we can sometimes be under the illusion that we're in total control of our lives, but for Jonah, he is really, in this story, subject to what God wants. I mean, he's got a decision to make. And usually what it comes down to is God's going to do his thing. Are we going to be participants or are we going to be obstacles? Are you with me? Are you going to be blessed by going along with God and doing the thing he asks? Or are you going to have God set against you? Those are the questions that we really deal with because he won't take away our freedom. He won't take away our freedom to choose. But that freedom to choose has consequences in which he's involved. And that's a very serious thing. And it, it bothers me that in, in today's world and in today's church that there's no fear of God. 
There's no reverence for God. We preach God's love thoroughly. We, we know that God is a loving God, but we need to also understand he's this God that would be, be taken seriously. He's a God that we need to revere and understand that we don't want to cross him. So in this story, God prepares a storm. You notice that in verse 4? God prepared the storm. He prepared the fish. Okay, In chapter 2, verse 10, he causes the fish to spit them up on the land. And God prepared a vine in chapter 4, verse 6. After all the preaching's done, it's nice to sit in a cool place. And so Jonah looks for a place to sit, and God prepares a vine to give him some comfort. And you know what? He continues to complain. You can hear him, almost like Woody Allen, just complaining. And God prepares and sends a worm, right? All of these things, you feel like you're in control, buddy, but you're not. You've got some control. You've got some choice. But God has a say in how things turn out. So I wanted to deal with the interesting, I think, what's a very interesting part of this story to me. And maybe this could be something we'll talk about in the uh, next couple weeks is to talk about the fear of God. The biblical concept of the fear of the Lord involves terror. You're not going to like this, but it involves being terrified of him. Think about... um, Isaiah, for one, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he's like, woe is me, I'm undone. Peter, when he casts the nets on the other side, fisherman, knowing all that he knows, Jesus, the carpenter, tells him to cast his nets on the other side, and he gets a load of fish. He says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. There's fear. John, in the spirit of the Lord's day, sees the Lord, and he falls at his feet as dead. This isn't just falling under the power of the Spirit. This, I think, is abject terror at the presence of God, seeing him in his exalted form. It's one thing to see Jesus in his humanity walking along the Sea of Galilee. There's something of his glory that's veiled. But when you see him as he is in his glorified form, there's something terrifying about that. Have you read the beginning of Revelation where it talks about the eyes that are a flame of fire that can pierce through you and see to the heart's core, the true motives and the, the reasons that we do what we do, what's really within us. When I was a little boy, I used to be afraid because I knew, I knew God could move in this way, and I knew it because my mom was used in this way. If you're a mom or a dad, you need to be spirit-filled because God will tell you when your kids are doing sinful stuff, and you can stop them. <laughs> my mom, I always knew if I go to church and my heart's dirty, somebody's going to know. He's, God's going to show somebody, and they're going to say it to me because God sees everything. Well, I had a next-door neighbor who was six months older than me, and we got in all kinds of trouble together. And sometimes just about the time we would do, go to get in trouble, do something we shouldn't have been doing, my mom would call, can you send Luke home? <laughs> How did she know? What we were going to do was wicked, but it was going to be really fun. How did she know? And she called us out. And uh, I think God used that to spare me heartaches in life. But there's a fear of God, and I think some of it involves that kind of terror. But it can also have this kind of middle sense of respect. Okay, So when we talk about the fear of the Lord, there's a sense of respect. So if you lessen the terror a little bit, there's a respect. Like, you know what electricity can do. Okay, and so if you take precautions, 
you don't have to so much fear it as respect it. Okay? And so there's a respect here when it comes to the things of God, and that's included in this, what they would call the semantic range of, of meaning for what the fear of God means. First of all, terror, that's what these guys felt, these sailors, when they saw the storm the Lord provided. They, they felt terror. They didn't even know exactly what they were terrified of other than dying. They didn't know that behind this terror is the God of the sea and the God of the land. Then there's a respect. And then a third sense of this is worship. And Jonah means this, but he's not really living by it. Okay, he uh, When he says, I fear the Lord, what he's saying is, in a general sense, the tenor of my life is that I'm a worshiper of God. Now, it's kind of ironic because right now he's living in disobedience to God. But the course of his life has typically been one of obedience and worship to God. But right now he's in a foul mood and he's got a bad attitude and he's running away from God. So to fear can mean to worship. Terror and worship usually are on the polar opposite uh, of each other. Terror suggests anxiety while worship suggests trust. And I would suggest that we base our understanding of the fear of the Lord uh, in this. If you want to understand what the fear of the Lord means, one simple way to do it is to say simply to fear God is to take God seriously. It's to take him seriously. That We know he means business. When he promises, he means business. When he warns, he means business. We've got to take it seriously. And that's, that's what it means to fear the Lord. When he commands, he means it. And so we take him seriously. And that's uh, what I think the fear of the Lord means. Sometimes that means terror, that we take him seriously and realize that's terrifying in one aspect. But it also leads us to a kind of life. He doesn't want us to play games with him. We, we shouldn't ignore him. We shouldn't marginalize him. But acknowledge who he is and live in a way that corresponds to that knowledge. You can see a progression um, between these in these sailors. That there can be a progression when we come to a real knowledge of who God is. From terror to respect and finally to worship. Um, I'll go from left to right for you. Terror. Okay, And once that subsides some... It ought to lead to a respect, a healthy respect, which ought to lead to worship. Okay? That's the fear of the Lord, from terror to worship. Okay? And I don't think it needs to remain in that terror category, but I think it ought to include respect. And I think as we gradually know God more, there are going to be moments when we come to realize He is more awesome than we ever estimated Him to be. Okay? And that means even if you've been serving the Lord for 50 years, you may have a, a revelation moment where God has shown you what he's really like. And it might bring to, in some a moment like a dread. I didn't realize what this was really like. I didn't realize who he really is. And that kind of fear ought to lead us to respect of him and ultimately to worship him. So therefore, um, we worship and respond. The aspects of fear encompass terror, respect, and worship. Only by the context can we sense which ones are being referred to here. In verse 5, it tells us all the sailors were afraid. They were afraid. It uses uh, the same root word. 
And they were casting their lots and identifying Jonah for the reason for the storm. And Jonah identified himself as a worshiper in verse 9. And, and that, if we take it literally, is one who fears the Lord. Okay, are you with me? That it's saying worship in NIV here, but the Hebrew word that stands behind this means he's one who fears the Lord. Okay, and then you go on down, you find that because of their precarious situation, uh, Jonah's rebellion and Yahweh's wrath, the men of the boat once again feared with great fear. In verse ten, that's the the literal Hebrew is they feared with great fear. Okay, and then the consequence of this calming of the storm of the the raging sea turned the fear of the sailors into the worship of Yahweh. The NIV translates the crew's response in verse 16, the men greatly feared the Lord. A better translation, according to Walter Kaiser, uh, Old Testament scholar said, uh, would replace fear with worship. And this makes better sense of the expression, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This was what was typical of worship. So when they feared the Lord, it had moved from terror to worship. Are, are you hearing what I'm saying? Jonah ran away, and there's no excuse for that. And he had to, had to answer to God for that. But God, in the midst of that, still brought people to a saving knowledge of himself. Are you seeing that? That's really impressive to me. He brought them to a fear of the Lord. So to understand this a little more, um, I thought I'd just relate something from my childhood. My dad uh, looked like a scary guy. He did. He looked like a scary guy. He had thick eyebrows and uh, the angry eyebrows. But I know what I'm talking about. Like, he's not mad all the time, but he looks like it. That's the kind of guy he looked. And then he had kind of a furled forehead from working in the sun a lot and a thick mustache, a thick black mustache. And he liked to sit in the living room in the dark either talking to my mom or looking out the picture window. And so that in itself was a little bit terrifying. Okay, and then on top of that, he didn't say much. But when he did talk, it was with a deep smoker's voice. And he didn't suffer fools gladly either. A phrase which means that he didn't put up with a lot of nonsense. And more than one friend said to me, uh, your dad seems like an axe murderer. And that made me kind of proud, actually, when I was a teenager. Yeah, I was kind of proud about that. At least he was on my side. And when I was really young, I was afraid of him, too. And when I got a little bit older, one of the things that he did, my mom used to read me stories after dinner. And one time she was doing the dishes, and she's, I can't, I can't do that tonight. So, George, will you tell him a story or do something? So he, he set me on his knee, and he... In the dark, <laughs> he told me about being a little boy during World War II. This is the first story I remember him telling me, and how they had to cut like half their headlights off so that, um, for whatever reasons, if Japanese planes made it all the way into Kansas, they wouldn't bomb our cities. There were aircraft plants there, so it was a legitimate concern, but uh, unlikely. But he told me about that, and uh, some of my fear of him subsided a little bit. And I began to love him, you know. I mean, I loved him, but I was afraid of him. And when I got older, I knew he loved me, but I knew my limits too. So with my mom, I felt like I could push her a little bit. Can you relate to that, anybody? You could push her a little bit, and she would uh, uh, respond to that. I would talk back. I would argue with her. But if my dad was around, 
then all he had to say was, that's enough. That's enough. Not much louder than that. That's enough. Like that. And that was it. There was no more discussion. And I was afraid, not that he was going to hurt me, but if I got out of line, he could put me in my place. And so when I got older still, I learned obedience through suffering. Anybody relate to that? I learned to respect him and to love him and appreciate his tender side. And so at that point, it was my aim to make him proud of me. Went from terror of my dad as a three- or four-year-old. I was afraid of him. To I want to make him proud of me, and I want to live in a way that would honor him. So I can see in kind of a microcosm something along the lines of what fearing the Lord is like. And I think Joe doesn't know this, didn't know that I was going to preach on this, but uh, I don't know if you know this, but Joe lives with us, and his room is right next door to my office. And so I think as God was pouring out the information for this message, he was also (laughs) doing it with the call to worship at the same time, that there's something about the Father who loves us. God is the ideal Father. Okay? If you have a bad experience with the Father, don't project that on God. He's the ideal. We're the, he's the pattern. We're the reiteration of that, if, if, if that makes sense. And so we don't do it perfectly. There's a member of VCR tapes. Anybody remember back in the day with VCR tapes and how sometimes you could record a tape and make another tape from a tape or cassette tapes? And you know what happens every time? It degrades. The quality is not quite as good. Now with digital stuff, quality is, I think, pretty much the same. But then it would degrade. And I think some, in some ways that's a, he's the ideal. And we're less than that. And my dad was less than that. But he gave me a picture of what the father is like. And in my relationship with my own dad, it went from dread. Like, please don't leave me alone with him, Mom. <laughs> and he didn't do anything to make me afraid. He wasn't mean to me. To not worship, in his case but wanting to please him, which I think is what worship is about. When, we, uh, when it comes to God, when we worship him, worship in the Old Testament is more than singing a song. Do you know that? It's all that we do in life as we live for him. Okay? Uh, it's the sacrifice we make. It's the obedience that we offer. It's uh, living right. Okay? Those things are worship in the Old Testament sense. To do that is to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord means living in a way that pleases God. And I feel that we've lost that somewhat, that we feel like we can go off the deep end and just simply come back to God and say, well, I'm sorry, and and jump right back in without any consequences. And it's just not that way. Sure, God is a forgiving God, but there's still consequences to being away from Him. And if nothing else, one of the consequences, we've lived that much of life distant from Him. And that in itself is a tragedy. But it can go beyond that. It could be that God, out of his love for us, puts severe obstacles in our way because he's trying to turn us. God loves those whom he loves. He disciplines. And so he comes down hard, not in a way to uh, as um, intending final judgment. There is a final judgment. But until the day that we pass from this life and no more decision can be made about our our future destiny. Until then, every disciplinary act of God, I think, is intended to turn us to him. 
He wants to save us, and his discipline is for that very purpose. Central theme of the Old Testament is that God is to be taken seriously. He's to be feared more than people. If the Lord is for us, if God is my God, what can man do to me? That's a refrain commonly in the Old Testament. What can man do to me? If God be for us, who can be against us? Fear the Lord, don't fear man. That's a constant theme in the Old Testament, and so he's constantly calling us to have a reverent fear for him. He doesn't want us to live in terror that keeps us from him. He wants us to live in a kind of fear that causes us to run to him. So if the choice arises, God is to be feared more than people. If the choice arises between offending God and offending people, we don't want to be on the bad side of God. To some, that sounds like coercion, like God is saying in a threatening voice, if you don't live for me, then it's going to hurt you. And, and that's true, but there's a good kind of coercion. Like when my parents did it, they weren't doing it because they thought making my life miserable was fun. Because if you're a parent, you know the less trouble you have to put towards your kids, the better. You know what I'm saying? Like if, if I don't have the discipline, it's so much easier just to let things go. But when parents really love, they won't do that. And my parents didn't. They, they didn't want to do that. They took seriously my future, and so they coerced me to be good when my own willpower was not strong enough to do it. They said things like, if you don't stop crying right now and get your attitude right, you're going to get a spanking. Okay. Well, I don't want a spanking, but I also don't want to stop crying. Which one do you want more? Which one do you want less? <laughs> might be the better question. And so uh, I was being coerced, yes, coerced towards my good. So when God threatens in this way, he's threatening, <laughs> he's threatening us for our good. Like, obey or else, because you need to grow, mister. You need to be stronger in God. And so if it does sound like coercion, uh, I would just think of it as love that God gives with an extra incentive. <laughs> Right. See, he revealed himself to humanity, and he's, he's shown that he's not random, and he's not fickle. He's not arbitrary, and he's not capricious. But his judgments are for the good of all, even if it sometimes gets in the way of our personal ambitions. See, we tend to think of it like this, and I, re- I recently heard it uh, really well put by a British psychiatrist named uh, Theodore Dalrymple. He said um, that when there's no internal law governing us, we become a lot of little tyrants. We all run around building our own kingdoms, and those kingdoms clash with each other. See, what we have in God is we have somebody who's overseen all of it. He oversees your little sphere of sovereignty and my little sphere of sovereignty, and he puts down laws so that these can all coexist in unity. So he says, love one another and don't live for selfish ambition. And boy, that gets in my way sometimes, doesn't it you? Like, I would just love to do this, God. Everybody else, forget them. I want to do my thing. God says you can't do that. Because if you do that, they're going to be doing that. And this is where we get our wars and our conflicts within our world. James chapter 4 talks about that very thing. We fight and we kill because we want. And so God is not capricious in making these 
um, commands. He's not arbitrary. He's not doing it out of a fickleness like one day he's like, you know, I'm going to make this a law. He's consistent. And once we've seen this, then we can understand how fearing him serves the interest of us all. And if we fear God, it's going to keep us from evil. If we are kept from evil, then the world will be a better place. Are you with me? I didn't hear anybody say amen, but I'm just assuming that's in your heart. Exodus 20, verse 20, shows us that a consequence of the fear of God is to keep us from sinning. Uh, fear should cause us to run to him and not from him. Keep that in mind, Exodus twenty twenty. I want them, he said something like this, to fear the Lord so that they'll abstain from evil. He wants to keep us from sin. And so he asks us to remember that there is a disciplinary side of God if we won't listen to his grace and, uh, and hear from his instruction. How do we deal with fearing God in light of the cross? Because in terms of the cross, uh, we understand that God has taken upon himself through Jesus the punishment of us all. That's what Christ is about, is that because we've broken the law, we're under the curse of the law. And what Jesus did is he came and he took the curse of the law upon himself so that God doesn't have to be against us anymore. But in love, he can be for us. So does that mean all fear of God goes out the window? We're just living in the age of grace and we can all just do whatever? Listen, this is New Testament. What does New Testament mean uh, generally? It means after the cross. Okay, I know there's the Gospels, but the instruction of the New Testament deals with things that happen after the cross. And even before the cross, Jesus says this in um, to the twelve. Okay, This is a strange thing. I would think this would be a strange thing to say to the twelve. You would think he'd say this to the Pharisees, but he says this to the twelve. Uh, and we know that from Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. But in, in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10, verse 26 through 28, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. For there is nothing concealed that will, be, uh, will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What's whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roof. And don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Okay? Then, rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's the one? Who is it? It's God. This is the one that it's talking about here. That's who you ought to be afraid of. He's telling don't be afraid of men, people, who can only kill the body. Be afraid of God. Okay? This is something akin to fearing the Lord. He's saying this to the twelve. He's already... Right? Shouldn't he already kind of have them in his pocket, minus Judas, of course? But he's saying, fear God to the 12. You're going to be out there preaching the gospel one day, and it's going to be rough. There are going to be people against you, and there are going to be people that want to kill you. Indeed, there will be people who will kill some of you, but don't fear them. Fear, rather, God. Acts chapter 5, verse 11. Anybody know what happens in Acts chapter 5? This is real simple, and it's easy to remember. They lied and they died. Ananias and Sapphira. And so they lied, and Peter speaks out against their lie. And it says, great fear sees the whole church. Of course, Ananias dies, and then Sapphira comes in. They ask a similar question. Did you sell this property and, and promise to give this much? And then you said you gave it all, but you held back. The issue is not that they needed to give everything to the church. You understand that? The issue is that they wanted everybody to think they were giving everything. But in their hearts, they were only looking to look good 
at the same time, they were keeping some back, so they were being deceitful. Peter says, why has it filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And he drops dead. And Sapphira drops dead. They carry the bodies out. And then great fear sees the whole church. These are Christians. These are people that have the Holy Spirit. And fear sees them. Wait a minute. We're not playing games here. We're not playing theology. This is a real God, and there's something terrifying about him. We don't mess with God. Are you with me? We don't mess with him. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 says, uh, Then the church throughout Judea, this is after Paul's converted, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit as it increased in numbers. Acts chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, who was known as the... Uh, the Italian regiment, and he and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. Acts chapter 19, verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, this is the account of the seven sons of Sceva who hear that Paul is casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they don't have a relationship with Jesus, but there are demon-possessed people, and they think Jesus' name is a magic word that they can just use without relationship. They find out that you can't do that. They go in, and they try to cast this demon out, and the demon says to him, hey, we know Paul, and we know Jesus. Who are you? And then it says that uh, the guy beat them up, and they went out naked and bleeding. And naked is a sign of major disgrace in the Bible. So they were disgraced. And then it says this, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high regard. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 and 31. We know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and all, for our God is a consuming fire. 1 Peter 1, 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work and partially live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. 1 Peter 2, 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15, but even if you should suffer for doing what's right, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Now, it's a little bit obscured here, but this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, where it says, don't fear men, but in your heart, uh, fear God. Fear God. So that's a quote from that, and it's applying that same fear to our relationship with Christ. And then three times in the book of Revelation, <laughs> people are called upon to fear God. Chapter 14, verse 7, 15, verse 4, 19, verse 5. And the description of the Lamb throughout the book calls for holy fear. So we're called to fear God even in light of the fact that God has extended His love to us through the cross. Do you understand what I mean by that? The, that to fear God, like these guys did, these sailors, they came to have, uh, 
one moment no knowledge of God to being terrified of God, to revere God, to worship God. To fear God means to take him seriously and to live for him. Don't be like Jonah. Jonah said, I fear God, but he wasn't living like it, not at that moment. He knew God would do what he said he would do. He does go to Nineveh, by the way. Something changed his mind. (laughs) And he went to Nineveh and preached 40 days, 40 days, repent, repent, repent. And he shouted out, and everybody repented and had fear of God. Maybe they were like, what happened to you? Seaweed hanging out of his hair, his skin bleached from the enzymes in the fish's stomach, maybe. But uh, Jonah's not happy with it. You remember everybody in that city puts on sackcloth, even the cows, right, the ostriches. And they all had to fast, too. They're like, man, I want some food. These cows are trying to eat their food, and they're like, Tina, we're fasting, you know, whatever the cow's name is. You're not going to be eating food today because we're all uh, repenting. And God relents from sending his anger. And I think it's kind of a marvelous thing, don't you, that Jonah's got a bad attitude about it. And it says in the Bible, in chapter 4, to this, this did not seem right to Jonah. You're not in charge, Jonah. And if you're a Jonah, and I'm a Jonah, and when you know we're not in charge. This is God's world. And he will show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. He'll save people that we think don't deserve it. It might be like the older brother, like, you're going to let him back in the house after what he did? It's not our house. Well, um, God did save that city. And I want to suggest to you today that the opposite of the fear of God is irreverence and ungodliness. These are the sins of not fearing God. Irreverence is the kind of thing that has no regard for God. And ungodliness is not so hateful as it is um, neglectful. Okay? You know there's a hateful thing that says to God, I will not serve you. And then there's another way of doing this which says you're not really relevant. And people just go their way and ignore him. And I think either one of those sins, they're both sins that are listed among sins that will be judged in the last days because we can't live as we should until we have God in his place. And I would suggest to you that we not take the lack of immediate judgment in our life. Like God might not raise up a storm right away if you're you're not fearing God. He might not do that. He might be extending grace to you. You understand that uh, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, 24, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. And here's how I understand this, is that some people find that their judgment comes right away, and other people, God is giving space. And so if you know you're doing something that's contrary to what God's God's will is, don't assume that you're getting away with it if you don't experience immediate judgment. Are you with me? How do we get the fear of the Lord? Well, I think there's, I think all fear of God comes from God, but 
Some of it comes through good teaching. If you're a parent who reveres God, uh, that's something that you can pass on to your kids. I've met people who they learned it from their parents, and, and I think I did too, you know. That my parents taught me this is how you, this is how we worship God. This is not right. This is how we act in church. We're going to be reverent towards what God is doing. Reverent doesn't mean you have to be solemn. Okay? You understand that? That reverent means that we take God seriously. And you can do that while you're dancing. Amen? Okay, but it means to take God seriously. So you can learn it through being taught to reverence God. And I think we see that in some places like the three Hebrew children when they uh, are called to bow down. They fear God, and they're not going to do that. Where did they get that from? I don't know that we have an example from their lives that you can say they saw God in, a, in an awesome way, and there was holy fear as a result of it. I think they had good parents that taught them to fear God. And I think that's a lot of the ways that God does that. The second way is that if we will not hear the instruction of others or learn from the example of others, God may have to show us how awesome he is. And that can be both good and terrifying. And it may be both. And so today I wanted to think about this because I think that sometimes we live a life as if God's not really that important. Even when we claim to be Christian, sometimes we don't act as if this is a serious thing. We act like church is a thing we do on Sundays and then all of our obligations are fulfilled and the rest of the week is for us to live how we want to. And I saw it growing up and it was in my life too. That you you get saved on Sunday and you go live like the world the rest of the week and sin all you want to because Sunday's coming again and when Sunday comes again, you're going to be at the altar repenting of it. And that's not the Christian life God intends. That's not a life of fearing God. A life of fearing God says the whole direction of my life is going your way. It's going northeast, not southwest. If you understand the picture from our scripture today, it's running after God and going his way. Thanks for your patience. Let's, uh, let's stand together. I wanted to have us contemplate this because I think probably there are some uh, who are walking at a crossroads in your walk with God, and the deciding moment or the deciding factor is going to be whether you really fear God or not. Whether this whole thing is just a, a fantasy in your mind or if this God is really real. And I think probably one of the reasons that, that some aren't following God, they've been maybe brought up to, but they didn't catch that fear of God. And so they're, they're living like the rest of the world. They're contemplating going that direction. Is somewhere, somehow, they failed to understand the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. We can't really live the way we should in this world until we have a fear of God. So would you take a moment as we prepare to uh, worship with this song, another extension of our fear of God. If you haven't been taking God seriously, I'd ask you to consider the consequences of that, where that may lead, where that may lead you personally. If we don't walk God's way, where that's going to lead your family, where that's going to lead our culture what that's going to do for you eternally. And I'd ask you to respond to God if he's speaking to your heart and you realize, man, I haven't been taking God seriously. Like, I don't even think about the consequences of disobedience. I just do what I want. That's no way to live as a Christian.
we ought to be asking the question, God, how can I live in a way that pleases you? Okay? And so today, I would invite you to the fear of the Lord. Hear it from this scripture. Learn it from what happened to Jonah. See it through the characters of the Bible who turned away from God and how they paid dear prices. One of the graces that God's given us is the history of bad examples. Man, that's a grace. Because what that means is we don't have to repeat the same mistakes. And we could learn from, we could respond to God. Today, if you're a Christian, but you've not been living in the fear of the Lord, I would invite you to come to the altar. I think it's a time to repent and say, I need to take you seriously, Lord. I've not been doing that. Okay. If you've not come to trust in Jesus, then I would encourage you today to turn to him with all of your heart and recognize that um, we've been living a life of sin, that we're all sinners apart from Christ and that we need forgiveness from him. We failed him. We've all failed at some point. We've lied at some point. We've deceived, we've tricked, we've cheated. We've done wrong by ourselves and most of all to others and by God. We need to recognize today that we need his forgiveness, and he's offered us that through Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and to take the wrath of God, our punishment, upon himself. And he's offered us a new life in him and a new start. We could simply say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to live in the fear of the Lord. If you'll pray a similar prayer to that, I think, and you mean it, God, I think God will do something in your heart this morning. But let's respond to him. And if that's you, I invite you to come to the altar too. But let's take a few moments to seriously think about the fear of the Lord and how we ought to respond to that. These altars are open. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.